0: This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Ron Johnson, Wisconsin's senior U.S. Senator, says he's he's planning to vote against confirming President Joe Biden's pick for the U.S. Supreme Court. A Republican, Johnson announced today that he's intending to vote no on Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson's nomination as a U.S. Supreme Court justice. In his announcement, Johnson conceded that Jackson is, quote, a decent person with a compelling life story, unquote. However, he says he's voting against her due to, of course, politics, saying that Democrats, quote, universally nominate individuals who become judicial activists, unquote. Yesterday, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted along party lines to move forward with Biden's selection. Democrats hope to confirm Jackson by the end of this week. If confirmed, she would become she would fill the vacancy left by Justice Stephen Breyer and would be the first black woman to serve on the nation's highest court. A nationwide poll coming out of the Marquette Law School last week found that a majority of voters nationwide would disagree with Johnson's no vote. That poll found that 66% of adults say that, if senators, they would support the nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court, while 34% would oppose her nomination.
1: The U.S. Department of the Interior is asking for public comment on a location renaming process in Wisconsin. The federal task force has identified 28 instances in Wisconsin where the name for a geographic feature contains a derogatory slur used against indigenous women. And now the federal government is seeking ideas for replacement names. An interactive map from the Interior Department of these offensive place names shows they are all located in central and northern Wisconsin. This process stems from a federal order last fall to declare the term offensive and remove it from use on all federal geographic features and lands. Many other states are embarking on a similar process.
0: State health officials have released a slate of recommendations for responding to the opioid epidemic in Wisconsin. These recommendations are the product of listening sessions held around the state with substance abuse professionals and individuals impacted by opioid addiction. Those listening sessions are the basis of a report released today that finds Wisconsin needs more treatment centers and better availability for overdose treatments, plus a more nuanced approach to address underlying causes of addiction. State data shows that the opioid epidemic did not slow down during the first year of the pandemic. Some parts of Wisconsin actually saw a record number of drug overdoses in 2021, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. State and local governments in Wisconsin are set to receive hundreds of millions of dollars to respond to opioid addiction as part of a settlement package in a multi-state lawsuit against pharmaceutical companies.
1: A new report from Isthmus newspaper finds there's no evidence to support the claim that the Wanakee School District has a policy to normalize the behavior of furries. The claim was recently promulgated by right-wing radio talk host Vicki McKenna, who purported that she found out about it through several emails, and speculation about furries has been gaining traction online in recent weeks. But Wanakee does not have any furry protocol, the superintendent of the Wanakee School District tells Isthmus. Furries, for the uninitiated, are a subculture in which individuals dress up in furry costumes and mimic animal behavior. A separate claim, entirely unsubstantiated, has been making headlines in recent weeks that another school district in Wisconsin is considering installing human-sized litter boxes for kids who identify as cats. That claim, as Ismus also reports, is also false. The claim popped up at a recent education listening session in Madison convened by U.S. Senator Ron Johnson.
0: The Dane County Board of Supervisors will see a good amount of change after today's election, with a little under a third of its members turning over. And when the new board takes office, more changes will be on the way, as the county expects to resume meeting in person with hybrid, virtual, and in-person options by mid-June. That's according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Meanwhile, the Madison City Council hasn't decided when to return to in-person or hybrid meetings. A plan a few months ago was rebuffed by city elders.
1: In more news coming out of local government, plans are underway for Madison's 2023 capital budget. In a memo to city department and division leaders obtained by the Capitol Times, Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway outlines her priorities investments in combating challenges in housing, transit, climate change, and equity. Still, the city's next budget has a long way to go, including input and proposals from Alders and the challenge of rising inflation and lingering effects of the pandemic. And now on to today's top stories.
0: The spring election is today and voters in Madison continue to make their way to the polls to play their role in democracy. Earlier, WORT producer Nate Wegehop spun around Madison to talk with voters about their thoughts on the election.
2: Today is the spring nonpartisan election when offices for judge, board supervisor, and school board seats are on the ballot. Maribeth Witzel-Bell is the city clerk for the city of Madison. She says to make sure you know where you're voting before you head to the polls.
3: Because
4: we just had redistricting, polling places have changed and ward boundaries have changed, which means we highly recommend that you verify your polling location before you head out to save you some time and help you get to the right polling place. Because of redistricting, your old polling place might still be open, but maybe you're not in the same ward that is voting at that polling place right now so even if you think you know that your old polling place is still there and is still open It would be important to just double-check before you head out.
2: I went to three polling locations across the city and wanted to know what people thought about today's election. I started off at the Madison College Goodman South Campus. It was quiet, but at least it was dry. Witzel-Bell says that she, too, is thankful for the lack of rain, as it can damage the ballots and make accurate counting more difficult. While there weren't too many voters out, the ones who were there said that they were passionate about being able to... To give their voice. What's your name? Steve Nadal.
5: And uh, why are you voting today? I believe wholeheartedly in democracy, and uh, democracy cannot exist without the freedom to vote as an American citizen. And I believe it's important to vote to express their their opinion through the election of certain individuals who represent their views on on. Life, uh, as in terms of government and uh, freedom, and so wholeheartedly uh, supportive of democracy. And the voting process is essential to having democracy. And what is your name?
2: Lisa. Lisa. Yep. Uh, and so, why are you out here voting today?
6: I consider it my duty as a as a citizen.
2: Okay. Are there any races happening today that you feel most passionate about or most interested in?
5: Uh, I have to do a little more studying here today before I can answer a question like that.
6: Um, Well, the only thing I can be interested in is school board because there's only one person running for all the other positions. And I'm not writing any in.
5: Well, to tell you the truth, it's democracy. Uh, I don't agree with some of the gerrymandering that's been done to essentially bring about a certain political outcome and and essentially distort democracy in electing people that Uh, truly don't represent the population of Wisconsin or the United States. Then
2: I head over to the east side to the East Madison Community Center. It was, again, slow. I saw around three voters in the half hour I waited outside. But once again, those that were there were voting for a reason.
1: My name is Heather Schultz. Um, I saw that there were a couple of school board positions. I have multiple people running for them. Uh, I wanted to try to get the best candidate in. I know that there were a couple of write ins that were going to happen, and I just wanted to make sure that Ollie maintained her position as president of the school board. Um, There are, but really for this election, it's just kind of maintaining what we have and growing in the right direction.
2: Finally, I went to Bethany Evangelical Free Church, just off of Willie Street, to see what residents there had to say. Uh, so, just real quick, uh, what's your name? My name is Art Safran. And Art, why, why'd you vote today?
0: Um, because I'm trying to stay in the habit of always voting, um, and I think it's becoming increasingly important for people to vote in the, in the local elections, as well as the, the main elections, because that they make policy and also affect, you know, what happens, like you know, the decisions that affect the results of elections. So it's increasingly. Important.
2: Are there any races on today's ballot that you are particularly passionate about? Today's
0: election, not not particularly. <laughs> um, well, I think you know, homelessness, inequality, things like that. Um, not sure what the answers to those are, and I don't know that anybody does, but those are um, major issues, especially as the population increases and the, the levels of uh, income inequity grow.
2: As of 4 p.m. this afternoon, almost 14 percent of pre registered voters in Madison had voted. There's just about two more hours to make your voice heard. Polls close at 8 p.m. If you're in line at 8 p.m., make sure to stay in line and you'll be able to vote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Waggy Holt.
1: Although precipitation hasn't started yet, the Madison area will likely see some in the overnight hours. For a detailed weather forecast, we now
4: go to WRT weather producer Caitlin Davis. The weather here in Madison today continues with the same spring pattern, chilly with a chance of rain. Temperatures today reach the low 50s, but are feeling about 7 degrees shy because of the 14-mile-per-hour wind that is coming from the southeast. The sun slowly peaked its way through the overcast conditions today, but not enough to see the increase in the real field temperature. Just around 3 p.m., the barometric pressure is sitting at 29.61, which is considered low, but is rising until the later hours. The ever-so-popular sinus infection is going around, and that can be caused by the fluctuation in pressure that we have been seeing. Your sinuses are filled with air. And when the pressure changes, the sinuses are no longer at equilibrium. Increased pressure and blockage is a result, which causes these infections. Winds tonight will fluctuate between 10 and 20 miles per hour, but will likely set at a steady 15 miles per hour coming from the south-southeast. I predict rain in the overnight hours with an accumulation of a quarter to a half an inch, and the rain will begin around 9 p.m., which will steadily continue as the occluded front slowly makes its way through. You may even hear a rumble of thunder due to some weak stability within the system. You may have noticed some extra light in your day. The sun is now rising around 6.30 a.m. and isn't setting until 7.28 p.m. So we're seeing just about 13 hours of sunlight again, which will steadily increase as the year goes on. With the increase in light, we're also hoping to see an increase in temperature. A year ago today, Madison's temperatures reached a high of 75 degrees and a low of 60. The average historical temperature in Madison on April 5th is 52.4 degrees. So we're right on track with the average although it would still be great to feel that 75 degrees again. Tomorrow, we will see a dry slot throughout the day, but the precipitation is looking to continue with a 50% chance of rain after 2 p.m. as the rain may struggle with the drier air in the mid-levels. The high should reach just around 49 degrees and the same pattern of wind reaching 15 miles per hour coming from the west. Hold on to your steering wheels, though, because gusts could reach about 30 miles per hour. Thursday will reach around 43 degrees and continue with the same wind pattern with a chance of rain and snow, with minimal accumulation. If accumulation occurs, it may be seen on grassy areas or even possible slush on the roads because of the temperatures dropping near freezing. With WORT News, I'm Caitlin Davis.
1: It's now 6.20 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: Last night, the City-County Homeless Issues Committee heard discussion about a Homeless Bill of Rights, a document seeking to ensure certain rights to unhoused folks living here in Madison and Dane County. Proponents of this Bill of Rights say that unhoused folks in the area are unfairly targeted by police and often do not get treated with equal respect when they speak with them. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Ulysses Williams, a formerly unhoused person here in Madison who now sits as the co-chair for the City-County Homeless Issues Committee. They talked about this Bill of Rights and what it could mean for folks without permanent shelter.
2: So, starting off, uh, can you tell me what is a homeless Bill of Rights? Uh, What would it do?
3: Uh, stop the discrimination of uh, homeless people. there's so many laws that um, discriminate against the homeless. Uh, um, <laughs> um, they get arrested and get tickets for that they shouldn't be getting tickets for. And for this
2: Bill of Rights, who wrote this Bill of Rights, and where did the idea for it come from?
3: Okay, um, in 2003, this in this country. Europe was doing it before us. Um, I don't know what it started in Europe, but um, in the U.S., it started in uh, 2013. Um, Rhode Island was the first one that had um, bill rates for the homeless. Um, then came out and from then, uh, people started putting out... Um, a Bill of Rights. Um, I think there's five cities and 13 states that have a Bill of Rights for the homeless.
2: And what are some of the things on this Bill of Rights?
3: Well, basically, the right to move around, the right to vote. I don't have my sheet in front of me, but uh, uh, personal property not being
2: uh, searched. So from there, why is this Homeless Bill of Rights important to the unhoused folks here in Madison?
3: Well, the reason is um, I used to be homeless myself, and I know what's going on out there, but um, we, when we became homeless, we did not lose uh, uh, our citizenship, which means uh, we have the same rights of anybody else that house. But since we're not housed, um, we are discriminated against
2: because of that. And what kinds of discrimination do unhoused folks here in Madison face?
3: Um, the last one is the first one, which uh, is against the Fourth Amendment. Right up on um, search and seizure. And first of all, I keep hearing the thing that the police have to protect themselves so they. That homeless people down when they're talking to the police, yeah. Yeah. and then they go into the backpacks. Um, Langdale Park, there's incidents that they go through the tents and stuff. Uh, no, that's not the way the law reads. It reads that um, you have uh, a right that the police do not do
2: that. And for the unhoused residents here in Madison, what is sort of, in general, I know you can't speak for everyone, but in general, how do they feel? What is their perspective on the Madison police on how they treat unhoused people here in Madison?
3: A lot of the homeless feel that they get in because they're homeless. And if you sit on the bench too long and... Uh, if this officer, second time coming through there and you're still sitting on the same bench, they will stop and question what you're doing, which is not the way the law reads. What else? Another example is free, freedom of movement. Uh, there's so many places that uh, the homeless cannot go unless they want to get ar- arrested. And so this was
2: discussed at last night's city-county homeless issues meeting. What So is this going to be, is your hope that this gets turned into a law here in Madison? What is your hope for an end goal with this Homeless Bill of Rights?
3: Well, I want to back you up the roof because there is a protective protect class against the uh, homeless in Madison that was 2013 they passed it but it's not taken seriously. Uh, Even when I talked to people that was on the board, they say that, no, it was a joke basically. Um, Just to get something on the books to help the homeless. And it's not being, um, basically, Legal-wise, they do not enforce it. And the thing is, strangely enough, the thing is, the homeless bill of rights I have, beside two of them, is the same one that the city has. And um, ex-Congresswoman, Cory Bush, uh, put it through Congress, and it's still in Congress right now, uh, to have the
2: same rights. And so what is sort of what do you want people in Madison, just regular folks in Madison, to know both about this homeless bill of rights and about the unhoused neighbors that they have here in the city?
3: The thing is these, we deserve well, not me, because I'm housed too homeless deserve the same rights on a house people and the same rights that anybody else. Most of my majority of them was born and raised in the U.S. and they should have the same rights. Yet, because you're homeless, it's not happening.
2: And do you just have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with me on
3: any of this? Well, it's the right thing to do. And right now we are pushing for it and we're pushing to educate the homeless because uh, the homeless do not uh, know their rights right now, and um the city right now is hoping that they don't i 'm just push we are just pushing it for everybody to know uh, equal
2: um playing field for everybody i've been talking with ulysses williams co-chair of the city county homeless committee about the homeless bill of rights which was discussed at last night's meeting ulysses thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me here today
3: well thank you for calling me and the uh we're not done yet and we got a lot of other places that um we need to talk to Uh, we're trying to get it out to public officials providers and the homeless themselves about what rights they do have
1: you're listening to handcrafted local news here on wort stay with us
0: we've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show cardinal call gets dressed up to attend pride prom
1: Wildlife Weekly talks about when you should and when you shouldn't try to help an animal you think is injured.
0: And radio astronomy travels farther into space than we have ever reached before.
1: But now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in a flash. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop spoke with new reporter Madeline Alfonso about the return of Pride Prom to the UW-Madison campus and what it means for the university's LGBTQ community.
7: So they could put it on exactly how it was meant to be in 2020, um, which is something really cool that I think a lot of people relate to because, you know, we all had to cancel plenty of things years ago. So the fact that you can take one thing that was supposed to happen and make it happen again um, is pretty cool.
6: Welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. Last Thursday we published our action project, The Identity Issue. Our news podcast, The Student Dive, is putting together an episode featuring some of the stories in the issue. The conversation that follows will be featured along with stories about Indigenous student experiences at UW-Madison, the history of racism at sporting events, and the annual Zine Fest in Madison. I'm joined today by news writer Madeline Afonso, who wrote about the return of Pride Prom for the Action Project. Thank you for joining us.
7: Hi, no problem.
6: This is great. Can you introduce your story, who you talked to, and why you decided
7: to write about it? The story is Pride Prom and its return back to campus. And I talked to the Pride Society's president, Diane Camarda. The Pride Society hosts Pride Prom every year, but for the past two years, they hadn't been able to because of university shutdowns and COVID restrictions. But now it's back. Talked a lot about, you know, just the rundown of Pride Prom and how it fits in with the university and the club in general. And also an officer of the club, Yasmin, Trammell, who gave me a little bit about what it's like to be in the the committee that puts it together. And it was really, really
6: awesome to chat with them about it. Can you explain what the Pride Society does and can you share a little
7: bit about their history? The Pride Society hosts meetings every week, I believe, in the Red Gym. And it's just a space for LGBTQIA members and their allies to come and just be in a space together and hang out mostly. Um, Diane mentioned they host workshops and speakers, crafts, you know, stuff like that. And one, I think really defining part of TPS is that it was founded in 1983, right after it was able to legally exist in the state of Wisconsin. So discriminating on sexual orientation was now illegal, which I think is something really special and they take a lot of pride in that as well dan she opened her email with you should mention this we're hosting a, a big celebration and you know we we really take pride in in this aspect of our
6: club which is really awesome how did members of the prize society that you talked to describe
7: what these events are like so yasmin hadn't actually been to one yet because she was planning it freshman year but it got canceled so she couldn't go um but there's a lot of excitement around it because of most, most of the student body, I think, hasn't been able to go to one and they've only just heard things about what Pride Prom is like, but there's a lot of excitement. that it's just this really cool event that you can go to. And while well, I was looking through photos, um, Diane sent me a Google Drive to go through and there were a ton of photos of all the queens and dances and balloons. And um, it was so cool looking through all that, all the smiles and the performances just looked amazing. So. I got to see a little sneak peek into the previous years, which was pretty
6: awesome, and it looks like a lot of fun. I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that even though Pride Prom two years ago was canceled right as classes were moved online and other events were canceled, organizers are really trying to revive the event this year as if it was happening again. Can you talk a little bit about what the event will be like this year and when it's taking place?
7: Yes, so they have all the... They spent all... um of their, you know, like budget. They have everything ready to go for their, for the pride prom of two years ago. So they have all the same decorations, everything's bought and ready to go. They don't have to do a whole lot of like brainstorming a theme or buying supplies cause they already have it in their, you know, storage. So they could put it on exactly how it was meant to be in 2020, um, which is something really cool that I think a lot of people relate to because you know we all had to cancel plenty of things years ago so the fact that you can take one thing that was supposed to happen and make it happen again um, is pretty cool and I think a lot of people can resonate and feel how special that is. May 7th at Varsity Hall I want to say in Union South I believe it's open to anyone you know allies LGBTQIA+, members, food, dancing, music, and an amazing drag queen performance.
6: Yeah, talking about that a little bit more, um, the Pride Society president that you talked to said that the return of the event will be positive for the drag community in Madison. Can you explain why that's the case and what kind of performances that they put on at this event?
7: Hopefully it will be positive. I mean, anything, any attention to drag culture right now would be positive. My editor, Allie, she texted me that you know, student drag hasn't been able to do anything, mostly on campus. Um, In the past two years, there haven't been any venues or anything. So the fact that there will be this one event that people, student drag performers can go to, I don't know the specifics, but I know that student performers and professional queens are coming. So it'll be a cool like mesh event. But yeah, I
6: think it'll just add to all the excitement what did members of the Pride Society say that this event means to them, especially around the theme of prom, which is a very high school-esque experience? Yes,
7: very high school. The two interviewees definitely um, highlight the fact that in high school, I mean, I didn't even have a prom, so I, and there's a certain, you know, population that didn't either, so we feel kind of indifferent. But <laughs> in general, most people do, and, you know, you have, you have the queen, king, You go in like a very fancy dress and the guys go in tuxes. So it's a very binary place, lots of gender binaries. So now that there's this different one, and in college too, there's a lot of other ways to explore your identity without as many, you know, structures in place. There's lots of different things to get involved in. So I think Pride Prom really represents that. That there's no more walls around you you really can just do whatever you want you're just going to go to this event this space and be who you want to be sounds cheesy but i think i think that's what they're getting at which is pretty awesome
6: is there anything you learned that surprised you while writing this story and talking to members of the Pride society
7: and i didn't i hadn't thought about prom that much in the sense that it was just very he- heteronormative that had never really crossed my mind but it was an immediate like click, like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As Diane and I were talking, I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, it's kind of, it's very structured, it's very limiting, but it's still something that's so beloved by, when you're in high school, that's what you look forward to. Like you (laughs) spent three years like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna go to the prom. This is gonna be the highlight of my high school career. But for a lot of people, they don't share that same sentiment, which I hadn't thought of before. And I think is something that people should take into account.
6: Just thinking about the theme of our action project in general, being around identity. Is there anything that you learned about yourself and your own identity while working on the story for our action project?
7: About my own identity, just in the sense to keep my own, just how I view other people and how they identify themselves. Keep myself open to, you know, just um, being more observant, I would say recognizing how other people identify and respecting that and, you know, making people feel seen, which is, you know, what a lot of people strive for. There are spaces that you can, that's something really special.
6: Do you have any other final thoughts or anything else you want to share about your story?
7: I hope people learn about Pride Prom and all the other amazing Action Project stories in uh, the edition this month because they're all really amazing and we all feel really proud. For
6: sure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out our entire identity issue under the Action Projects tab on our website. If you want to pick up a printed copy, our About Us tab is a map of our newsstands. More conversations about our Action Project will be featured in our news podcast, The Student Dive. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Medicine.
0: When you see what you think is an injured animal, your first instinct is to do what you can to help it. But on tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg says that sometimes the best thing for you to do is nothing at all. Welcome
8: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the wildlife program manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today we'll be talking about some of the reasons you should intervene or shouldn't intervene in a wildlife emergency type of situation. Sometimes those emergency situations are absolutely warranted. And I'm going to say this as two different frames of mind. Wildlife emergency as it truly is an emergency or wildlife emergency as in a conceptualized wildlife emergency that actually isn't an emergency at all. So, some reasons that we should, I think, as human beings, be wary of what is happening with the world around us and keeping our eyes open for certain things that are happening. You're looking for animals maybe in your backyard or in the wild if you're on a hike or maybe you're out kayaking or biking or something. You know, those of us that are outdoors maybe fairly often or even if you're not, it's really something that we're sharing our environment with. It's these wild animals who also live here. Uh, You know, they're not living in our nice, Houses. They build their own houses usually or use old cavity nests and other things. But these birds can come into contact with people and get injured, of course, and they get sick. And there's so many reasons that, you know, we want to maintain those populations and those individuals for us to really enjoy them as a species that does coexist here. Can you imagine the world without birds? Or can you imagine the backyard without a fox running through? Or deer? Or fish? I mean, anything you can think of, you know, it just, if you've ever heard of, You know Rachel Carson's *Silent Spring*. If all the birds were magically gone and it would be silent, it would be the strangest world you would live in. It would just be—it would be odd. So when there's a wildlife that is sick or injured and it's an emergency, usually that means that it is grievously injured. There's an open fracture. Maybe that animal is bleeding. Maybe you saw it get hit by a car. Maybe it was hit by a bike. Sometimes bicycle path hits happen. Turtles crossing the road. You name it. There's so many different things. Or maybe it's an emergency, meaning that that bird is emaciated. It's starving to death because maybe our climate has now produced babies hatching a month too early and there's not enough bugs for those parents to go around and feed the babies. And if they're starving without human intervention, they're probably gonna die. Even the adults, same thing. You know, that's an emergency situation. Maybe if that animal is actually in the middle of a roadway or a major highway where it could cause accidents to people. So let's say those turtles do cross the road right in the springtime here, which is coming up very, very soon, and it's in the middle of a very busy intersection where people are trying to swerve to avoid the turtle. Or maybe, you know, the car ahead of you hit it, but then you weren't watching very closely and bam, now you've got a fender bender going on. Those are all things to think about where, you know, those wildlife, although it might feel very inconvenient to you, the road is probably pretty inconvenient to them. If you imagine those turtles trying to get right back to their spot where they just want to lay their eggs and their babies and be able to reproduce, you know, we're kind of getting in their way and then they're also kind of getting in our way. So, finding ways to mitigate that. That is, also considered an emergency situation, especially if, you know, risk to human lives or to that animal are very apparent and immediate. But we don't suggest you getting out of your car in that busy intersection. We really suggest contacting 911, your emergency police, if it's that emergent. Or if it's a non-emergency, then maybe the non-emergency number for Dane County, which if you don't have it handy, I'll give it to you now just because. Uh, The number is 608 255 2345. Really nice, easy number there. If it's wildlife or animal services related, it should be extension 6. And so you can always call if you're not sure, but in those immediate situations, if it is an emergency, definitely get local PD involved so that maybe they can stop traffic and safely get those animals across so that we're not getting people and those animals injured. That's definitely a time to intervene. We would say that if an animal bite or an animal attack has happened to another animal, so uh, your dog maybe has gotten the batch of baby bunnies that were in the yard, They're bleeding. There's puncture wounds. The sooner you can get that animal to a rehabilitator, the sooner you might be able to start a course of antibiotics, for example, for an open wound. Otherwise, if you let it sit there and you're like, oh, well, I'll just watch it for a couple of days, maybe that wound is going to fester and then that animal is going to become septic and die. So there are definite immediate reasons for concern for intervention. So the animal is visibly injured, drooping a wing, broken leg, open bones, anything that would cause it to not be able to fully function in the wild as a normal individual and it's something that is relatively recent trauma, I would say is something that should be immediately, hopefully, referred to a wildlife rehabilitator, local PD, animal services, or containing it safely until you can get it to someone who is licensed for treatment of those animals. Okay, so that's the actual emergency situations in my mind. Non-emergency situations, but that we get a lot of calls about that are more of an assumed emergency situation, is that You know the goose with the broken wing that is on the side of the road near a pond and maybe it's been there for a couple of months and the injury looks like it's old but we get the call saying, hey this bird needs to be caught right away, like right now, and it may have been something that actually has been there for quite a while or we've gotten calls about it already but it's an animal that's still mobile and still able to get around really well and be able to use that environment at the time. Although it might be a perceived emergency because yes, that animal's injured it might actually not be even a case for rehabilitation if it's been so long that, you know, a fracture is healed in the wrong place. Maybe it's a situation where they are nesting. I've had a lot of calls from folks about geese that are sitting on their nests at this time of year, and they say, this goose hasn't moved for multiple days. Like, I've been watching it. It's just laying there. So getting all the information from the public, uh, you know, giving really great details, evidence, photos, all of that is so important for us as rehabilitators to help assess whatever situation you're calling about. Other ones could be considered reuniting and renesting cases. So, you know, let's say that a baby bird nest fell down from a windstorm. Well, the more immediate that you can put that baby back up in the nest, or meaning the whole nest can go back up, that's going to be better for the babies. So that's definitely an immediate concern. But if the fledgling is just trying to fledge from his nest for the first time and he's on the ground, that can be natural for a lot of our species. So like our robins might spend 7 to 10 days on the ground foraging for worms. And that's natural. That's part of their behavior. So although you might see a bird on the ground, you're like, oh, it can't fly. Oh my gosh, call a rehabber. You know, this is immediate. It needs help. It might actually not need help. This actually might not be an emergency situation. So knowing the difference between a nestling songbird and a hatchling, they're about the same. Hatchling just out of the egg, nestling, they're growing up in the nest and then a fledgling who's going to take that first leap of faith off the edge of the nest and as part of their natural history they should be. Some species don't do that though so keep that in mind and always call if you have any questions. Other things that sometimes happen is uh, the bird keeps getting kicked out of the nest. This is going to happen here pretty soon here. We're we're into April and getting into May. We're going to have some species that are commonly nest parasites like our brown-headed cowbird who will sometimes brood parasitism cause them to lay an egg in another bird's nest like a cardinal. You might have cardinals nesting right Now. And you might see two different types of eggs in the nest. Well, they rely on the other parent to help take care of their own babies, often to the detriment of the other ones. But, you know, since they are technically native species, they are protected. You know, the mom cardinal might figure it out and might kick that cowbird out of the nest. But we've gotten multiple calls during the season, especially birds breeding here in Wisconsin, where the one little bird just keeps getting kicked out. You know, why does he keep getting kicked out? Well, did we send a picture? Because what if it's a cowbird? That's you know if the parent figured it out it's not their baby they might just actively continue to kick it out of the nest and if you didn't realize that and you kept trying to re-nest it well you're actually maybe doing more harm than good and some detriment to those cardinal babies so that might be a warranted case for rehabilitation so getting that information as soon as you can by calling leaving a message whatever you need to do checking on websites ours is www.giveshelter.org. All of the resources we have in our state are just great, honestly, DNR website, Audubon, US Fish and Wildlife, Whoever you end up getting to hopefully will be able to point you in the right direction. If you're not sure if it's an emergency situation, but if you are sure, definitely contact the right folks, which would again be your local police for the most part or trained pers- professionals. Okay, so that's a little bit about when to intervene, maybe when not to intervene, what's really an emergency, what's not necessarily an emergency. Some things can wait, some things can't, but as always, you have 24 hours to get any wild animal to a licensed rehabilitator if you find it sick, injured, or orphaned. So uh, definitely something to keep in mind now as we're just about to enter baby season and you can always give us a call um our number is 608-287-3235 and this has been wildlife weekly on wort
0: It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: Radio astronomy has taken listeners far into the deepest parts of space, but this week feature contributor Rourke Habegger gazes upon a star so far away it's only one pixel large on even the strongest telescopes.
9: Today on Radio Astronomy, we travel 12.9 billion years back in time. I'm Rourke, your guide on this trip through space and time. An article recently published in Nature magazine details the observation of a star that existed 12.9 billion years ago. If you remember that cosmological estimates place the age of the universe at 13.8 billion years then you know this star existed just 900 million years after the Big Bang. It is closer in time to the Big Bang than it is to us. This star, designated as WHL0137-LS, is nicknamed Arendelle, and it's a shocking discovery. The Hubble Space Telescope zoomed in. On a gravitational lensing caustic in order to spot the star. Then it took years of data analysis for astronomers, led by Brian Welch at Johns Hopkins University, to conclude they were actually seeing a single star. Let's go over gravitational lensing and the other word I said, caustic. First, gravitational lensing is an observed phenomenon which is well explained by Albert Einstein's equations of general relativity. Since mass and energy bend the fabric of spacetime in those equations, light can get bent around massive objects, just by following the curves in spacetime. This has been seen around our own sun. During solar eclipses, astronomers have seen the light of stars, which are directly behind the sun. This means light is not traveling in a straight line. Some of it gets bent around the sun so we can see it. This bending of light allows massive objects to act as lenses. I wear glasses because I have horrible nearsightedness. The lenses of my glasses bend light to correct this nearsightedness. That bending is the result of electromagnetic forces. Gravitational lensing does the exact same thing, but with a different force. The caustic, created by a lens, is a closed loop where the magnification of light is effectively infinite. To see a caustic, stand underneath a light with a coffee cup in your hand. Tilt the coffee cup, and you'll see thin strips of really bright light in the bottom of the cup. Those are caustics created by reflection off of the edge of the cup. When observing clusters of galaxies, they gravitationally lens a bunch of stuff behind them, including stuff really far behind them. Looking at a caustic line created by a combined 41 galaxy clusters, the team of astronomers found a pinprick of light with the Hubble Space Telescope. That pinprick of light turned out to be a single star which they nicknamed Arendelle. How do they know it's a single star if it is an unresolved image? Unresolved in astronomical observations means that a single pixel on the camera encloses the source. Look really close at your phone or computer screen, not if you're driving though, and try to see those individual pixels. Cameras on telescopes have a similar setup. There is a smallest size of resolution. Arendelle's light fit in a single pixel, so we don't know how big it is, just that it is smaller than the width of that pixel. Producing computer models of Arendelle suggest it has a maximum radius of one tenth of a parsec. That is a huge star. For comparison, our sun is one ten millionth of a parsec in radius. Additionally, Arendelle could weigh between 40 and 200 times the mass of our sun. The main justification for Arendelle being a single star is that the light of the source is so small in size. It definitely can't be an entire star cluster or galaxy. If it isn't one star, it is likely a star system with two or three stars. Overall. This is the farthest away individual star system we have ever seen. Astronomers use the amazing power of gravitational lensing to identify Arundel, and they hope to point the new James Webb Space Telescope at the exact same place in the near future. This way, they could use spectroscopy, splitting up the light by its wavelength, to determine if it is a two or three star system instead of just one star. I can't wait to see what they find. This new stellar discovery made my week, but I hope you have a stellar week this week.
0: And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6.
1: Your weather producer tonight was Caitlin Davis.
0: Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff of the Daily Cardinal.
1: Super Dave Lawrence and engineered the show.
0: Nate Wege helped produced this newscast.
1: And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with Nuestro Patio. Good night.